You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 149. Today's show is a broadcast of the Financial Independence Club, brought to you in collaboration with Utopia Dreamscape. We discuss The Dirtbag's Guide to Life by Tim Mathis, presented by the author himself. We discuss simplicity, cool begets cool, living on the bare minimum, taking a gap month off of work, the obligation for dirtbags to travel and explore, and social norms that you are not obligated to uphold. Things like reaching a certain financial status or being tied to one place for your entire life. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You are listening to Artistic Finance, where we help creatives learn about the business of show business. Welcome and thank you for being here for the May Financial Independence Book Club. And this is the place that we learn things like put your savings into a high yield savings account. AKA, I learned that. <laughs> um, also, we learned things like if you're in the stock market, maybe low fee index funds are the way to go. And today we're going to be learning how to be a dirt bag. Today we are rebranding this financial independence book club into the financial independence club. And that's because books can't contain us. They can't contain this knowledge. <laughs> so this is all just a semantic thing a little bit. But if you stop uh, stop seeing us use the word book, that's why. And speaking of this book club, uh, here is the creator, the original creator of the club, the delightful, the lovely Amy D. Lux. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Yes, as Ethan said, we're rebranding because we don't want... Uh, while education and reading is a big part of this, and we will continue to read books, uh, we don't want it to be a barrier of entry for anyone. So whether or not you've read the book, you can listen, you can join in, you can learn. Um, reading is fundamental, but it is also optional. So you can now be part of the Financial Independence Club or the FI Club, however you like to call it, moving forward. Not, one thing that hasn't changed is our vision and our mission. So our vision is financial literacy for creatives. Our mission is to create a transparent forum and inclusive community to propel creatives and arts workers into financial security. So everyone deserves prosperity. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you to Tim, especially our host um, and the writer of uh, The Dirtbag's Guide to Life. So I would like to just introduce you in, in one way of saying that for me, I had gone through several years where I wasn't reading and I was really sad about it. And so uh, last year I started a challenge uh, where I was making myself read at least a book a month. It ended up turning into the Financial Independence Book Club. And then um, this year I doubled that challenge by giving myself the homework of reading one Financial Independence book per month and also reading a book that was not a finance book each month just to keep things fluid there. And so it was actually my non-fi book when I picked out The Dirtbag's Guide to Life, um, but then was pleasantly surprised that there was a lot of FI, FI nuggets in there. Um, and so I was posting about it on my Instagram at Utopia Dreamscape. And then I was tagging Tim. I did not know Tim at the time, but then we started chatting and kind of getting a little bit deeper into some of the, uh, you know, non-traditional financial principles, which we'll get in uh, during the session as well. So I'm very excited to have the author here. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. And uh, please jump on in, introduce yourself and say hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I was I was trying to remember the exact order of 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 process of how we met. I remembered like you'd posted something from the book, so I immediately like predatorily jumped on and was like, "Oh, she's uh, she's got a podcast. I should be on that." Um, <laughs> but you're totally right. I'm glad that I kind of tricked you with the title into reading a, a book that is it's not a five book specifically, but it's um it's a lot about money finances and it sort of like incorporates that in a big sort of way. Um, I'm going to, I'll tell a few stories about myself. So I won't like, I won't do too sort of intense introduction, but just for a little brief introduction about myself. 
I am, as you said, I'm an author. I've written this book, The Dirtbag's Guide to Life. I've written another book that is uh, kind of a memoir about leaving religion. So a totally different topic. But mostly now I'm trying to write in in like travel and, and adventure. And that's really kind of what I care about and I'm focused on at the moment. Um, I'm working on a couple other projects um, around the Camino and around sort of pilgrimage as a concept. And um, I, if you want to find me online, I write regularly. I post every, at least every couple of weeks on timmathiswrites.com. So there's my, uh, <laughs> there's my shameless plug. I'm also a psychiatric nurse. I do that part-time. That's how I make most of my money. Um, I've done a ton of traveling. Mostly, I would say my main homes are like the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle, Tacoma area, and then um, also New Zealand. Um, and I'm from Ohio originally. So I have these sort of roots in those three places i would say and yeah so i drift around a lot so um that's that's part of what i i write about you know that that reminds me um before we get too far into it we probably should um define dirtbag for this audience because we mostly have theater people production people lighting people you know and uh, i read the book because i am a dirtbag i'm a trail runner I'm, i'm a van lifer so you know that's what naturally drew me to that um but not everyone in this audience would actually know like the the term dirtbag, how we use it. Do you want to explain? That's a good place to start. So for those of, of you who are out there who aren't sort of familiar with the, the sort of concept of a dirtbag, it's, you know, like, obviously the term originally was like a bad person, right? You know, basically dirtbag means like a bad person. But in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there were these, um, there were these climbers basically who went and sort of posted up at Yosemite and just spent all their time climbing and sort of scrounging for money wherever they could and, and focus their whole life on, on climbing. And it's not entirely clear who coined the term, but somebody at some point who was like probably writing a magazine article or something like that said, called the, those people a bunch of dirtbags. And they sort of latched onto it and, and sort of took it on as a badge of honor. And it, it sort of spread in the outdoor community as this term that refers to people who've like sort of centered their life on the outdoors and are, um, you know, sacrificing the normal things like a, you know, a career or a family or, or a house or whatever, at least for, at least for a period of time to, to go like pursue their outdoor passion. You know, this is the artistic finance book club, but I actually think there's a huge overlap in this community, both like, actually because there's a lot of artists and there's a lot of creatives who do this sort of thing but also just sort of functionally because these types of people have to kind of pursue the same types of life strategies and financial strategies in order to make it happen um that is that is that is that a good answer that that was a very good answer because i'm not a dirtbagger or familiar with the dirtbagging other than this book I, I also agree that there's a lot of overlap, especially because like going going to gig to gig, like I've only freelanced my whole life. Even now, I don't have work like next week. So like, will work materialize? Will I not? You know, um, and then traveling, you know, like my next like six weeks are going to be traveling for work with my son and with my wife, you know, because she can work remotely. So that's good. Maybe I'm more of a dirtbag than I thought. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing, right? Like it, it overlaps a lot with sort of back like the international backpacking community at international, the sort of international like digital nomad community. There's a lot of similarities in those those groups. So the book in brief summary is a way to like, I'm trying to define that community, but I'm also, it's like self-help basically. It's like self-help for how you um, how you can live that sort of lifestyle. In really brief, and it would have been 2000, I think late 2016, maybe early 2017, my wife and I were sitting on this bus in Mexico. We had just come off of about a year and a half where we essentially hadn't worked. We um, we started the sort of whole experience with hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, which took us about five months. And then we we sort of drifted around a little bit and we did do a couple travel nursing type contracts. And then we lived in Las Vegas because my my mom and sister are there. So we spent some time in Las Vegas. Then we spent like four months in Latin America. Then we spent like four months drifting around sort of the Western US. And then we, we sort of capped it all off with this, this trip to Mexico. And we're sitting on the bus just sort of thinking about what the year had been and and thinking about how we'd gotten to that point. And we were talking about how 
even a few years prior to that, we wouldn't have believed that it was possible for us to do that sort of thing. It would have been possible for us to, you know, go that long without working, to do all this cool stuff and to be able to afford it and and really prioritize those things in our life. And then we started to talk about kind of where we'd come from. I'm originally from small town, Ohio. It's, I grew up in the same town that the book Hillbilly Elegy is about. So it's it's um, it sort of gives you a flavor, right? Like it's this picture of like declining industrial small town America. Like that's totally where I grew up. Yeah, my grandparents worked at the same factory as the the author's grandparents and that sort of thing. So we grew up, both my wife and I grew up very sort of humble circumstances. Um, always just sort of assumed that life was going to be you know, working 50 weeks a year. And if we're lucky, get a couple weeks off, retire at 65 if we're lucky and then and then die, right? Like, so that was always sort of the picture of life. And that was sort of always, it's just the culture where we grew up, but it somehow didn't shake out that way for us. Um, we got to this point and we're, we're sitting on this bus in Mexico and looking back on it and thinking like, okay, so there's a good book in there, right? Like there's a good, there's a good story in there about how we moved from this point of, basically not seeing a real path outside of like the traditional work path to being able to actually do it. So we initially started sort of jotting out some ideas like, well, how did we do this, right? Like, how did this this end up happening? And we started to jot down things that um, some of them were about money, um, like some of them were like, okay, so how do we pull this off financially? But then also there was a lot of it that was about sort of the decisions we'd made in life. Um, about like what to prioritize, the kind of relationships we built, the kind of career paths we pursued, because we both, one of the key things that we that happened sort of after uh, we turned 30 is we had both established these very independent career paths as nurses where we could kind of come and go from our jobs as we pleased, which gave us this sort of sense of freedom. Um, we focused on kind of the way we prioritized paying down debts, the way we prioritized um, investing the way we prioritized doing the things that we wanted to do and figuring it out. So that's kind of where the book came from. And it developed into this, this thing about being a dirtbag, basically, because it like clicked at some point that this is like a whole subculture that does this, right? Like, and it's, and a whole lot of what we were doing, we picked up along the way from like trail runners. We were in Seattle. And so just in the Seattle outdoor community, through hikers, climbers, all these sorts of people we hung around who were living these sorts of lifestyles. And we'd sort of picked it up and applied it and done a lot of that stuff ourselves. Um, that was what sort of clicked that this is more than just a thing that we had done that, that you know, something our, our cool experience, but it was like, it's this is a, a communal experience. The core thing I think that we got to was that Early in our life, in our 20s, in our early 20s, my wife and I got married super young. Again, typical like small town, you know, Midwesterners. We got married when we were 22. We started dating when we were 18. So we've been together forever at this point. You know, it's been like 25 years. But in our early 20s, we just started to prioritize doing the things that we wanted to do and figuring out how to do it. Part of that was about like money, right? Like part of part of it was about figuring out how to afford it. But part of it was just about okay, so what are the things we're going to prioritize in life? And that's really what led us down that path. The basic dirtbag life approach, I would say, you figure out what you want to do. You like look at the resources you've got and you figure it out, right? That seems pretty basic. It seems pretty straightforward, right? Like I'm just saying, like, isn't that what everybody does? But but I actually don't think it is. I think a lot of times they kind of put the cart before the horse or, or they misprioritize or something and they they focus on building a certain amount of money or like focus on income itself as the goal. But actually the goal is not the income, right? The goal is what you want to do with your money. The goal is what you want to achieve in life. That's one of the reasons I think that the Dirtbags Guide resonates with people who aren't into the outdoors, right? Like it's really about like, how do you prioritize doing the things that you want to do in life, right? That was kind of one of the things that surprised me when I I, I literally just picked it up for the title, but the very first chapter is called money. And then the second chapter is career. And then the third chapter is responsibilities. And then in retrospect, I was like, of course, it's a guide to life. Of course, it has to hold these topics. To your point where it seems like these are really simple concepts, but in our society and America and capitalism, and we're, we're focused on the money, we're focused on, and then we also have credit cards and people think debt is a way of life. That's literally a phrase. A lot of people say, oh, debt's just a way of life. And 
you know, their 20% credit cards are just racking up compound interest. No, our first book club, we spent half the time talking about credit cards debt, which is like my least favorite thing to talk about. But anyway, so like even here where I am annoyed by it. It makes sense when you when you don't have enough money to do the things you want to, it's easy to obsess about money, right? Like because you're like that's the whole problem is that I don't have enough money to do what I want or I you know, I can't figure out how to manage my money in a way that'll let me do what I want. So, you know, it's you can see why people get obsessed with it and you can see like why, you know, I don't want to talk about debt that much, but um, it's you know you can see why people take it out because it's a quick and easy way to get to that thing that you want, right? Like if, whether that's travel or a new house or a new car or education or, or whatever it might be. But all of it's, I think it's all a trap if you if you let your focus switch to finances at the expense of what the goal of you know financial independence or whatever you want to call it is, right? My, I wanted to tell, talk a little bit about my my money story as well to give a sense of where I'm coming from as well. And I'll try and keep this relatively brief. But the the basic thing is like we, you know, we started out from zero. You know, we started out from from below zero. Um, we we got like I said, we got married at 22. We had both just graduated from college. We had this is nothing nowadays, but I think between us we had like fifty thousand dollars in in university debt. And after that, I think we just basically decided that we weren't going to we weren't going to pile more debt on top of it. So we just we just basically kept living like we were poor college students. And I'm, I mean, it's 25 years later, we still haven't really stopped. Right. Like it's, it's we, we just kind of kept, you know, out of college working, making more money. But we sort of kept living. We didn't have money. We, you know, we've never I don't think I've ever owned a car that's newer than than ten years old, right? Um, I've, we've and we've never taken a loan out for a car. We've always paid cash. We've always uh, when we we did buy property uh, about five years after we graduated from college in Seattle, and we bought the cheapest thing we could with the expectation that we were going to fix it up basically and and see that as an investment and and work with it. But other than that, like we've never really taken on additional debt. We've had a brief period in our 20s when we were really like struggling and scraping to to you know pay our mortgage and there was a long period of time when we were sort of in that that mode of like really focusing on trying to like how do we get enough money so we were you know working two jobs or or going to university and working half time at the same time or whatever. So really there was a period where we we're scraping but what happened is just across time that that just general model of, of like trying to trying to live like people don't have money while also having um, an income that that we could have afforded to, to live better. It just all built up. Um, my wife is actually like an excellent financial planner. She's she actually teaches nurses to do this. She's got her own business called Nurses Investing for Wealth. That's that's all about like teaching nurses how to invest. So she knows she knows what she's doing, but really like what happened is we got started early and just kept like doing the fundamental stuff like putting money into investments and saving and not taking on debt. We hit that age 35, you know, I, I just to flip back to that story about like how we ended up in Mexico, we were both kind of burnt out on work. We were both sort of sick of <laughs> like the routine and we were both like really wanted to do something big and cool. And we we looked at our finances and realized like kind of unintentionally, we'd gotten to the point where it was a very real possibility, um, especially if we did cheap things, like if we took cheap options, the PCT, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail, you can, you can spend 10,000 bucks in five months between two people on there. You're not paying for accommodation. You're eating crappy food. You know, it's, it's, it's actually can be dirt cheap. And then when we traveled around Latin America, you can travel in Latin America for a couple thousand bucks a month if you really want to, you know? So basically, like, we figured out if we just did cheap stuff, we could, like, spend a year and a half doing whatever we want, which was awesome, right? Like, that's a that's a cool thing to realize it at 35. We got no kids, so that helps a lot, too. Um, but... <laughs> So basically, that's our financial story. And since then, it's it's sort of, you know, as you get older, things just get a bit easier, right? Like one of the concepts in the book is it's sort of to me is the the ideal financial situation. I call it dirtbag rich. There's a lot of different ways to kind of categorize, you know, in the financial independence world, people categorize cappuccino fi or whatever, barista fi or whatever, you know, these these sort of different types of financial independence. But for me, like dirtbag rich is a way of saying you have the freedom in your time to do what you want 
whether that's like, you know, spending your summers through hiking or, or climbing Yosemite or these big travel or paddling adventures or whatever, you've got the, you've got the time freedom to do that, but you also have the financial means to be able to make money quickly enough to do that, that it's not going to stress you out. Right. Like, so, so basically you have a career path or a skill or something that you can sell that you can make money quickly and without a ton of stress and do it in a way that you don't hate. Um, and then you can use that to basically buy yourself time freedom. I've been talking to one of my, my friends about this, this concept. And I think there's sort of like this Holy Trinity thing that people are aiming for, which is high time freedom, high sense of meaning and fulfillment and high income potential, right? Like the ability to make money quickly doing something that you don't hate. And so to me, that's the ideal financial situation to be in. The goal isn't to not work ever again, or it's not to like not do anything meaningful ever again, obviously, right? Or anything productive. It's just to be able to be in a situation where you don't have to like feel controlled by your work. You don't have to feel like you have to do things that you don't want to do. That's what this is all about, right? Is, is freedom. I'm 40, 43 now, and unless something really weird happens, we're sort of going to be in that that phase for the rest of our life. We're nurses. I mean, it's nursing is a hard job, but it's a lot easier when you can do it whenever you want. You don't have to go in you know, when you don't want to. The other positive thing about nursing, um, and these are the types of careers that, like I talk about these sorts of things and these types of careers in the book. The other thing about nursing is that there's, it's a huge demand. So you basically, I'm a mental health nurse. I can like literally work whenever I want to, you know, if, 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 if it really comes down to it, I can have a full job, full-time job in the next week, no problem. Or I could work casually and pick up shifts where, whenever and wherever I want. My wife's in the exact same boat. So we've got this huge like sense of stability in our careers because of that. And across time, we've because it pays well enough, and especially as you get some experience, you can make enough to live on relatively quickly. So, those are the, some of the the concepts in the book. I've I've got some other points, but I'm gonna like I'm gonna let you guys ask some questions or just hear your thoughts because I, I always get like sick of hearing my own voice. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things that I like that you talk about in the book too, and to what you're talking about now is you say um, making your career like a means to an end secondary to exploration or whatever it is that you're personally pursuing. I think a lot of people will go on these spurts. Like you said, you can make that money quickly for short periods of time. So you can you can go as a nurse and you can get a contract for a month or three and then take off again. We can also do that as freelance lighting designers, you know, and there's different careers that can do that where you can take off swaths of time. Um, so I did really appreciate seeing it from that perspective. I do want to kind of hear because I think that there's a lot of agreement to that in this room um, from conversations I've had with you both. I mean, we are all, I, I still, as an abundance thinker and a, and a wildly free person, um, I still have my moments of scarcity too, because we are just so ingrained with like, you have to make money, you have to work, you have to put your career first. So for people that maybe don't break away from those normative, that normative kind of thinking as easily, what does it take for someone to really kind of break the chains, I guess? How do you cross over? Because it's that first leap is so hard, you know? The first thing I would say in there is that like, as someone who's raised in a, who was raised in a sort of a community where most people were doing factory labor, were doing uh, retail, customer service. It it comes very naturally to think of work as a means to an end. Like like most people hated their jobs where I grew up, and I think I think most people do, right? Like like just in general, at some point it it breaks them. So so like that was one thing I would say is like I've always had this sense of work as like a means to an end, which is is good kind of because it sets you up to think of it in a different like this I'm not pursuing my you know my dreams through my work necessarily that's something else right so there is a mindset thing to it like it's sometimes it's as 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 concrete as sitting down and being like what do I actually want to accomplish in life right like you've got a limited amount of time and so like sitting down and concretely thinking about it can be sort of that first step and it can and can sort of like I guess, shift your mindset a little bit. The, the more negative way of framing this is that like, as a nurse, nurse is a freak, nursing is a freaking hard job. 
between 22 and, and 35, you know, we were in that exact same, I don't know if it was career. We, I don't say we were career focused, but we didn't feel like it was going to be an option to like not be working full time, you know, or not, not be working in a stable, solid, well-paying job. Like that was always, there's always an anxiety about that initially, right? Like of not having sort of a contractor, like, a, and I think that is a huge thing for us we burn ourselves out. And so it was like, it's sort of a force out that sort of, that we started to be like, Oh God, like I can't keep doing this. And so then you start to look at it and be like, Oh, I don't actually have to. (laughs) So that was like, for us, that was kind of the process, which is, um, which is probably not the ideal process that I would recommend to people. There's huge value, I guess, in, in, Again, identifying what you want to do, but also identifying what you need. Um, one of the big gifts of like when we burn out going on a through hike, what happens on a through hike is you spend five months living out of a backpack and you essentially get used to the fact that actually like I'm not any less happy than when I like had my house full of crap and all my stuff. And I almost like even forget that I have that stuff. Like I, you go back home and you're like, oh, you know, I hadn't even thought about this in months. So, so there's like a real gift in doing something to recognize, you know, what you actually need to be happy. And that can help you to prioritize like, okay, so can I survive on less than I currently am? If so, you know, what's that mean for my future? You know, there are people for whom like work is sort of their core identity and those sorts of things. And it's, and it's great. And they don't, you know, they don't want to not work they don't want to not go to their jobs or whatever. But um, I think there's a lot of people who, where that's not the case. And I think you you have to identify what your actual core identity is. Another thing I would just to toss in huge proponent of just take a month off, right? Like, like this is a thing that, that Angel and I talked about too, is like the first thing that sent us down this track was we went on the Camino to Santiago and it took us about a month. Um, we didn't quit our jobs to do it. We, you know, we just took the time off and went and did it. It wasn't exactly on a whim, but it was because our friends had invited us because they were going to do it um, after their, you know, it's kind of, we kind of crashed their honeymoon a little bit um, because it was their, you know, after they got married, they went and did the Camino and we're like, oh, we could totally figure that out. So we went and did that. And it like that process of having time away, even like, you know, it doesn't have to be a ton of time, but I think it has to be sort of significant enough that you, you start to forget like what life was like back home. If, If you can take a month and just get away from your your situation if you're if you're like genuinely stuck in a rut it's like it does wonders for helping you picture what life could look like if it was you know if you weren't in the same routine that you're in at the moment so so yeah so that's my plug for plug for pilgrimage and a, a month-long trip i like that and also just because i had the last month or so i've sort of taken time off but just because i had a son (laughs) but like you know it was sort of on a whim sort of not i don't know you decide but like that has made us sort of just reflect and pause be like you know because me it's like well i really haven't worked for a month and it's like whoa and you know i'm a freelancer so it's not like i get paternity leave or parental leave or anything like that but and then moving forward we're going to be leaving new york i feel like it's the same thing as like yeah it's not going to spain or going wherever but it does make you pause and reflect. And I also want to say, Tim, really love the book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for putting it into our lives. Because when Amy first suggested it, I was like, I don't go hiking. I don't go backpacking. <laughs> I, I've i never camped. I never intend to camp for the rest of my life. And then I start reading it. And it's talking about like oatmeal with, with mealworms in it. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> what? Oh my gosh, is this? But like Amy, I was I was surprised that like, yeah, it's a guide to life. And actually, I really liked it. And actually, the, some of the stuff I connected to was that I was raised re- very religiously. At some point, I honestly thought I was going to become a pastor or a minister or something like that. So I, I resonated that. And what I liked also was that you got to these like morals or these responsibilities, you called them like, what is the dirtbag's responsibility? And another thing that helped me get into it is, is I don't know if you guys know, know about the lie flat movement which is sort of like comes out of China and it's really just about like not overworking yourself. No, I'm not going to identify with my work. Like I'm not going to work. I'm not going to push myself. Me not being a dirt bagger, at least at first, (laughs) I got into it because I was like, oh yeah, this is basically saying like, it doesn't have to be 
this way. And I just want to point out something like I'm, I'm actually now just reading my notes. I took all these notes. <laughs> um, but I love that you wrote the dirtbag mindset on money has evolved from, I guess I'll eat cat food for dinner because I bought all the gear and then I only have 49 cents left to my name to hell. Yeah. I'm going to eat cat food. Cause I don't need the fancy people food, <laughs> 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 which, which I just love because it's, it is just like, yeah, like, what do you actually need? Like, why, why are you going to work all the time? Like, why do we, you know, even on this call, I was like, oh, I don't have work next week. And so clearly there's part of me that identifies with like, I need to be working. And if I'm not working, like, what's up with that? I really like the responsibilities. And if you don't mind, I, I'm going to find my notes and I'm going to read the responsibilities. And this is actually like, in my life, coming from like, an argument of like, if you're not religious, how do you know not to murder people? Or like, how do you know to be a good person? <laughs> and I'm always just like, really? Like, really? We need like some sort of layer? Um, anyway, so here are the dirtbag responsibilities. Environmentalism, rehumanization in the face of technological advance, open your eyes to natural technology in the natural world surrounding us, simplicity, and humanism. You have the responsibility to protect other humans. And I just like these responsibilities because you're also layering in, you know, it's not about not doing anything. It's not about being productive or being a part of the world. We're still part of the world, but we're just not doing it maybe the way that we're used to. When we were on that Mexico trip, a part of the experience when we we're sitting on that bus was we've been doing this for a year and a half and I'm actually pretty bored. I feel like we've been just like walking around looking at, at things like we've done all this amazing stuff, but I've spent the last year and a half basically just walking around looking at things. I need to do something meaningful, right? Like, and, and after that, I like went back to working more and like focusing more on writing. Um, it's sort of like a productive thing that I always wanted to do that I found meaningful. The thing is, is like when you and this is one of the things that's maybe relevant to that sort of like by conversation about like, well, you just save all your money and then you're going to be free. But actually, when you get there, you're not actually free because you're like, oh, actually, I still need to do something with my life that makes me like feel like I'm a productive member of society and that I'm a responsible human being. And and so that was for me, it was important when I was writing the book that that was like a big part of the message, right, is that this isn't just about like doing whatever you want, right? Like that's not the point. Like the point is like, how do you sort of find a path to become a good human being? Right. Like, and, and so it is like, you know, again, coming from a religious background, don't tell anyone, but I was kind of like writing a Bible for people. Right? <laughs> like, like it's, <laughs> I, I saw it. I saw right through you, Tim. I, I needed the Bible. I'm a disciple. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Totally. So I started a cult, but, um, but no, I was trying to, I was basically, you're recognizing that like subcultures form and like this sort of outdoor dirtbag thing is a subculture of people who do this sort of thing. And they form around values a lot of times, right? Like it's not just about sort of an activity or clothes they wear or whatever. They're formed around values. And that's part of what I was trying to capture. Subcultures form as sort of a like critique of the larger culture, right? Like that's why they happen. And so I think that there is really kind of what you pointed out. There's universal valuable stuff in it that the, the hook is that it's like the book is meant to help people live a life, an adventurous life on the cheap, right? Like that's kind of the hook of the book. But the the sort of bigger picture is there's actually like important stuff within the subculture that that helps people to identify things like, well, what does actually matter in life? Like, what should you actually do? Like what one of the you talk about responsibilities, and I think it's a huge thing that it's your responsibility to like spend your whole life working as hard as you possibly can. And probably like you need to like both do that and figure out how to save the world at the same time, because like individuals are supposed to solve all the world's problems. But then like at some point it hits you like this is not helping anyone. Right. It's like just grinding the planet into the ground. It's grinding people into the ground. It's like super, super dysfunctional. You have to it's I think at some point all of us and, you know, you had a kid. Maybe that's that's part of the driver, too. But at some point, everybody starts to question those like. There's like, well, actually, what? hold on. Is this actually what I should do? Is this actually like because responsibility is something that you're like, it's what you should do, right? Like that's kind of how you define it um, or something you're responsible for. Like you you own it. You made a commitment. You should follow it through. On, on the flip side of responsible, you had written things that dirtbags are not responsible for, which I think is also a valuable thing. So I wrote them down. So I'm just going to read them. 
You're not responsible to achieve any standard of housing or work or financial status. You're not responsible to be tied to one place for your lifetime. You're not responsible to spend your life suffering to be productive. You're not responsible to spend your life making money for someone else. You're not responsible to have a nice car or clothes. You're definitely not responsible to go into debt or work overtime to buy crap that you don't need or want, which I think we can all get on board with these things. And I think it's really good that they're written down here. So then maybe I should like put this plaster to the wall or something (laughs) to remind myself, you know, these are all things that you've, you've mentioned already, but it's true. It's like, we don't need this. Like, why do we need what we need? You know, when you were talking about the, um, the growing up around everyone's doing factory work and everything, it reminded me, I went into the Wayback machine of one of my very first dirtbag experiences when I was 21, I think. I literally had nothing. I have a very broken background in my childhood and I have been surviving on my own since I was about six years old. And, but I was, I was a happy little creative starving artist and I had 20 bucks, 20 bucks for my name. I went up to a rainbow gathering in Vermont and then I found out there was a national one all the way over in Oregon. And I had never left Philadelphia, really. I was like, cool, let's hitchhike. And I hitchhiked all the way from Vermont to Oregon with $20 to my name. And like somehow it magically worked out. People were like, oh, kid, like giving me money. It just people giving money to me, buying me a sandwich. After the gathering, we found out about a squat in Portland. And so we went and stayed at the squat. And then I got a factory job on the night shift where it was like a magazine factory. And for four hours, I would just stack papers into the machine that was like going whizzing by and you like couldn't stop you couldn't miss it and then you'd get a coffee break where you get a coffee out of the machine and then you go back to four hours feeding the thing and I did that for two weeks so that I would have enough money to continue hitchhiking down the west coast like completely irresponsible right but like all I knew was that like I wanted to go see what the west coast was like right and so the factory thing was what made me trigger it but also you know, it is that thing where it's like, do what you want and figure out the money and then you'll figure out the money. You'll figure out how to serve, you know, that's a little of an extreme example. I was, I was very young and I probably wouldn't exactly do that again right now, but the middle ground. <laughs> you can't live your whole life that way, but you can, you can live a couple months that way. Right. Which is like big, right? Like two things. One is I had like exactly that same job in Ohio where I fed paper into a machine over and over. I lasted like a month and it was like, did you get all paper cuts like all the time? Yeah. Like, because and that also was, like my torture. arms were tired. Like. Uh, it was so like, it was, it's the worst job I've ever had. Cause it was like, yeah, it was like giving yourself paper cuts for 12 bucks an hour or something like that. Like at a pace that you can't. Yeah. Anyway. So there was that. And then um, the other bit of it is exactly that point of like, there's definitely something to like starting with what you've got. Like I got 20 bucks. What can I make happen with 20 bucks versus starting with like, ah, to get to the West coast, it costs like $150 on a bus or, you know, 350 on a plane. Like, instead of being like, you know, this is how much it costs starting with this is how much I have. I'm going to see what I can do with it. That is definitely a thing that it's a lot easier when you're young, but like it is, it's a good like attitude to keep through life I think, because you can accomplish a lot. I still travel on a shoestring by choice. And, you know, a lot of people and I travel a lot and a lot of people just don't understand how I travel so much, but I'm, I'm not staying at the really, you know, fancy resorts. If you're if you're couch surfing and staying in hostels and like cooking your own food, like you can. That's that's one of the things, right? Like it's all about figuring out like like what you can accomplish on 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 the budget you've got or you know again it gets back to like what's important to you the important thing to you is like going and and seeing this new part of the world or whatever it's not like going and staying in the resort and like spending a ton of money so like just don't do that just don't do the expensive stuff do the cheap stuff and <laughs> it gets it gets me further i mean nothing no shade on people that like resorts you know but like yeah, I, I mean there's so much it, more but... because i don't have to spend $20,000 on one trip yeah, exactly. And it's, it's again, about identifying your value. Wait, I just want to say, because Nicole and I like to travel, <laughs> or before we had a kid, we did. <laughs> and we're going to get back to it. We're going to get back to it when he gets a passport. 
Um, but we like really prioritized travel in our life. Um, the first 10 years of our marriage, we took, I would say like more trips than other people, but we didn't do it a dirtbag way. Like we, um, we've never even done an Airbnb. Like we like having somebody there 24 hours a day that like, if we had a question, we could ask them like our front desk in the book. You said, you know, the first price you see online is very often like not the lowest price. But it's that thing of start with like, what do you want to do? Like, okay, we want to go to China. Okay. So like, look it up and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is going to be such an expensive trip. But then you just continue on. Like you look for, okay, how can I get to China? Like, is there another way other than this round chair airfare? Is there a different airline? Is we don't go on like a shoestring, I guess, like trips do cost like 3000 to 5000 probably, but we're going to Africa or we're going to Asia and there's a way to do it. And I remember once we went um, on a trip and, and, you know, it was like a week and a half and we came back and we told somebody what we spent on it and they were like, well, did you eat food? And we were like, yes, we did. <laughs> but it's like, if you want to do something, you can, you can find a way, like you don't have to go with just what the expectation is. So I'm only saying that because while I'm not a dirt bag, um, Nicole and I like also travel like modestly, I would say. And we're able to do a lot. So we're maybe we're like a halfway ground here. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think it's it's stuff that a lot of people have picked up across the last. I mean, the Internet's been great for for helping people realize the possibilities that are out there in life, because you can easily find other people's stories about how they pulled these things off and that and that sort of thing. But one of the things I've been doing all this like research and writing about like pilgrimage is sort of a classic concept, you know, like, you know, going towards somewhere important for some transform life transformation or something like that. So I've been doing a bunch of reading on that recently. And, you know, the classic travel, the most classic way to travel is like pilgrimage. Basically, it's to walk out your door, walk towards somewhere. And then when you get there to walk back and it's like, it's actually a dirt cheap way to travel that also like, and, and the reason it's like, people have kept doing it is because it like changes their, their lives, right? Like it's like, it's one of the most meaningful things you can do just to like walk out your door and walk to a different city and then walk back, right? Like it's, it's a weird, super weird thing, but it's like sort of the essence of what hooks people into travel anyway. So, I mean, that's, you know, you couch surf, you use like warm showers, you use like buses, you use whatever, and you can, you know, you can have a very like transformative travel experience People, people did this as paupers in the Middle Ages, right? Like, so we can figure out how to do it now, right? <laughs> That's amazing. Can, can I circle back just because I love the religious things? <laughs> um, but there's like the golden rule, which is, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But you have a golden rule for dirt bags. Uh, so I, I kind of um, like in every chapter I, I identified like golden rules on the specific chapter heading. Well, okay, actually, I should have clarified. The, my favorite was the cool begets cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the thing around like, yeah, I talk about relationships and sort of how the people you surround yourself with and you, you know, you guys like the artistic community will totally resonate with this. I think the people you surround yourself with really determine the way you shape your life if you like go do cool things, like if you're just do something weird, like if you were to, you know, just just pick some odd thing, you're going to run into somebody along the way who also is doing something odd or is going to be inspired by the odd thing you're doing. And it's like, oh, dude, my friend did this, you should be in contact with them. And then they'll connect you with like, somebody else who's done something weird. And that'll give you and I a new idea that like, oh, I could do that too. And so eventually what happens is like, if you do interesting stuff, you become an interesting person and you meet other interesting people and it all sort of like exponentially multiplies. So I think that that's like a huge reason to do the things that you dream about, right? Because eventually like it's going to make it so that you're surrounded by other people who are also doing the same sorts of things and it's just going to, you know, steamroll from there. So yeah, that's that's the, the golden rule around relationships. It's just my favorite, like that's my new rule in life is like cool begets cool. We've never called ourselves cool, but that's all right. But also you had you had said kids are like the ultimate opportunity to put the cool begets cool principle into action because cool parents are going to beget cool kids. Nicole and I are like, well, we better have a cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> like this guy's going to reflect on us. Kids are a, a roll of the dice, but like, you know, the the best chances, you know, if you want your kid to be cool and have cool interests, do cool things yourself and they'll pick up on it and. I'm not a parent. That's an area of the book that I'm always like, 
it would be a lot stronger if I had somebody who was a parent who'd, who'd done this sort of stuff to give some input. But I do think that that's true. I, I think that I'm not like overstepping my bounds by saying that. But I think that's true. Well, I totally think it's it's great. <laughs> I, I also think because I like I, I always like to simplify thing. I, I know that there's a lot of nuance in life and complexities and all that. But I also think that truth and morality and all this can often boil down to like very simple things like Wheaton's law of like, don't be a dick is like one of my favorite. How do you not become a Karen? Or how do you not murder somebody? Or how do you and it's like, just don't be a dick. Like, let's start there. <laughs> and so cool, but gets cool is also like that. And it also, to me connects to other people, like rugged individualism that America has of like, we do everything for ourselves, we don't need any help, blah, blah, blah. blah. And it's like, no, 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 cool, but gets cool. You need people around you, you need the connections. Yeah. And that was, yeah. I mean, this is maybe a sidetrack, but um, my whole sort of immersion in the outdoor world started. And when we moved to New Zealand, when we were 23, this gets to, we went to New Zealand and studied and worked. This is a whole sort of goes right back to Amy's point of like, you just move somewhere and work there and you can have the adventure of a lifetime, right? Like it's so, so that's what we did when we were 23. And my whole immersion in the outdoor community was there. And New Zealand is very much like a, um, a communal culture from the beginning, the outdoors for me, that sort of like rugged individualism is sort of rubbed, which is very much a part of American outdoor culture. Um, but it's always rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. And I think it's like not quite accurate because you don't actually do any of this stuff on your own, right? Like even like, you know, Chris McCandless, like an end of the wild was like drawing on lots of other people's resources to go do his crazy stuff in the wilderness or whatever. So yeah, so no, I'm glad that you, that resonated because I think to me, it's like really important principle too, is like that this is about like the community, right? Like it's about building community. and Yeah, because because like at the same time you're saying, you know, you don't have to play by the norms. You don't have to partake in nice clothes or a nice car or like you don't have to do these things. Like it's just in your imagination that you need to do such a thing. So in a way, it's like withdrawing from people and society in, in, in like one sense. But on the flip side, it's like every part of being dirtbag relies on other people. Because it's like, oh, go do this job for a little bit of time. Well, you have to have a whole other structure and a whole for the job to exist. Or to take a bus somewhere, there has to be somebody to make the bus, somebody to make the road, yeah. <laughs> somebody to drive the bus. <laughs> right. Like all that. So it's like, it's, it's complete community, like 100%. And to that point, it's the things that we do that we don't make money at that already drive those relationships. So that's why when people volunteer or you do something for your neighbor, or you just hang out with your friends, like none of that is getting, you're not getting money for any of that. Right. And we draw so much more meaning and we really connect with people because that filter of, of money isn't kind of dirtying things up. Obviously, I'm a proponent of wealth building as well, but it can also very much get in the way if it's your your only focus and your only goal and it is not value-based. It can really detract from what's really important. Yeah, it's the means to an end thing, right? Like, you know, keeping your your sort of sense that it's that's wealth building is important and came from a background where you didn't have money. Like it's it's very important, right? Like you under if you understand what it's like to be in that situation, you know that it is very important, but also it's important for specific reasons, right? Like it's not important and it it's money's just this made up weird concept, but it's you know, it's a tool, right? It's a tool to live the life you want. So Wait, I remembered another one of your golden rules, and that was the one for, uh, wait, what was it? Responsibilities. And this was exploration is a responsibility, which I love. <laughs> this, to me, this is like a huge place where like there's there's this huge overlap between like the artistic community you guys are, are part of and, and targeting and that sort of thing. And then the sort of outdoor community too, because a lot of times it is really about, in both cases, it's about sort of like figuring out what the world is about, figuring out like learning and growing and communicating and having adventures and all these sorts of things is a very much like part of the like reason people do art as well as the reason people like go on adventures, I think, right? Like it's, it's all sort of this means of exploration. I was talking to, I was talking to somebody about this recently, actually about how adventure is it like, is it just a waste of time? Is it like a, am I just like being super selfish? And, and like, I don't, think so i mean i think it can be just like anything can be it can be self-indulgent or whatever but like i think in the end it's 
what you're trying to do is learn things about the world and then report them back and use them to make yourself a better, better person and using them to kind of enrich your community, use them as, as tools to make the world a better place. And that's, to me, that's like what travel's about. That's what like all these sort of outdoor adventures are about. It's also, I mean, I'm a writer as, as much as I'm sort of into the outdoors, right? I spend more time writing than I do playing outside or whatever. I think they're similar though, right? Like they do a, a similar function. They're sort of figuring out the constant process of trying to figure out the world. <laughs> I mean, I I have a, a, you know, what I always come back to is as human beings, I think we are all innately creative even the sciences and the math. And I mean, just if you look around, like everything in the world that we know is because somebody had an idea and then they made it, they fabricated it, they created it, right? The nature and the exploration, I think, is tapping into the source because we are earthlings after all. And we've been so, you know, separated from our natural surroundings. And we we mostly migrate into major cities and concrete jungle. And so when you get out in nature, you know, it just, you know, kind of deregulates you and 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 gets you grounded, literally. And then that refills the well of creativity, and then we can go back and then we create things and we do the things with our community. And so it's kind of cyclical, I find. And I think I think it's a natural requirement. I think it's something that is really lacking in kind of modern society that a lot of people are very disconnected from that exploration um, and from the natural world. But I think that, you know, from my personal experience and just about everybody that I know that does connect with the world that way, everyone always says it's very rejuvenating, brings the energy back and makes you feel alive again and things like that. I think that's really important. Yeah. And it's that sense of connection and transcendence and like being connected to something bigger than yourself. Yeah, I think that that very much drives creativity. Yeah, Murakami, if you read what I talk about when I talk about running, very good book on that kind of idea, basically like how he's a runner and a writer and they can't, you can't do one without the other kind of thing. And it's, yeah, I think there's, there's something really true in that, you know, it's classically like people who are creative are also classically frequently like you know, it's the hippie thing, right? Like they're they're out in, they're out in the woods, like hugging trees, and and then like writing poems about it, right? Like it's it, it goes together. <laughs> Love a good hug from a tree. I know Amy's going to try to wrap us up here, but I just want to say one point, one more thing out before we go. You talk about like saying "must be nice," and that if you ever say "must be nice" about something or someone, that really is a bit of jealousy, or it's indicating a little bit of jealousy that there's something that you want really deep down. I, I just resonated with that because I have that thought sometimes and then I have to pause because <laughs> I don't know, just an example of like Tony Awards, like right now the nominations are out and I'm like, oh, it must be nice for those lying designers that have Tony nominations. <laughs> it's like, it's definitely something I want deep down or not deep down, <laughs> but it's also like, but if you talk to each and every one, the way they got to that is crazy. And there's no way that I could even do that. Anyway, but it's it's just a good point of like anytime you have that thought. Yeah, or maybe could. And like one of the things I and I it's a gross thought, isn't it? But like one of the th- things that's important about that, and I think this is like uh, the way I framed it in the book was when you think tag it when you have that thought of like must be nice. Instead of asking that, try and switch it to like how did they do that? Because that's an actually a useful thought, right? Because must be nice is not useful. It just is like gross and depressing and kind of obnoxious but like but like how did they do that then it actually gets you to think like oh they did all this stuff i don't want to do that stuff that's fine or i do want to do that stuff so i'm going to do that stuff and i'm going to do what they did too which is how it works right like that's how you sort of identify mentors sometimes is like this person did this thing i really want to do and i'm jealous of so like how did they do it and how can i learn to get there yeah definitely modeling well, Ethan was right. I, I do I do have to wrap up, but I want to just ask you one final thing. So it turns out that an AI, an AI bot copied your book because it sounded like you took about a year to write the project. I'm sure the AI bot didn't take that long, but how did you find out and what's going on with that? Yeah. So this is like very brave new world. It is true. There are actually two robot copies of the Dirtbag's Guide to Life available for sale on Amazon. 
yeah, it took me it took me about yeah about a year of formal writing to write the project. I'm guessing the AI butts cranked them out in like a couple hours, but. Essentially, I was, as you do, I was like Googling myself. I was, I think I was looking up the book on Goodreads. I like noticed that there was like another book that was like dirtbag life hacks. You need to know important long-term rules for hiker trash, people who like to ski and travelers or something like some like weird, like mutant variation on my title. And I was like, what is this? So I like looked it up. Goodreads and Amazon are the same company, right? So like it linked, it just linked through the Amazon profile. And they had like, they had literally like word for word stolen my book description. Um, They like added some stuff in, in like a weird, like poor grammar. It's like, it's clearly like English is not their first language kind of thing. But I have no idea who this person is. But they've, they basically like stole my book description. And then like, I opened up the, I, I was like, I really want to read this book now. I like want to buy it and see what it's it's like, but I, you know, I'm not going to do that. But um, I uh, I opened up the like preview or whatever, and it it was like so weird. It was like the same topics, but like it had clearly like it clearly just been run through Chat GPT and reworded. This is like a whole thing now. I, I, apparently, like there was a, a Washington Post article about this other guy who'd had a similar experience, but it's it's just the next iteration of like piracy, right? It used to be that they just kind of like store your PDF and distribute it on Reddit or whatever, which is like, you know, that's more straightforward. I'd rather people did that. Oh, and I, I found that there was another one that was very similar too. I was like, oh, they've done it in two versions. That's cool. But um, so I like contacted Amazon and told them what had happened. And they essentially told me that they weren't going to take it down because it's not, they'd essentially evaded piracy laws because and copyright laws because they hadn't, it wasn't the same text. They're like, we, you know, people are allowed to write books on the same topic and you can't copyright that and the wording is different enough and they've like it it doesn't say the same thing inside so they've evaded piracy laws so (laughs) so it's it's kind of crazy right like like this these books are like super you know i don't know first of all i don't know why they stole my book it's like you know you're about to be a new york times bestseller i guess so because like, I mean, whatever. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even making money off the book, but I'm sure their priority copies won't either. But, but you can see in the future that this is going to be crazy, right? Like, because people are going to be able to basically rewrite when AI gets better, it's going to be able to like rewrite books in a way that's actually like they're good, right? Like, so and will compete with the original. It's, it's, it's sort of a weird, brave new world, but. Well, for our readers, make sure you get the right one. A dirt bag's guide to life by Tim yeah. Mathis. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't mistake it because even they're like even the author's names are misspelled. The like I think the guy's last name is Rodriguez or er. <laughs> Rodriguez with an R after it. I'm like what in the world? But yeah, no, it's um, it's creepy. It's it's kind of to me. There's an irony in the fact that the robot stole this book about like getting back to connecting with nature too. Right? Like there's there's, there's some like poetic irony there yeah well yeah thank you for sharing i just thought that was so wild um um yeah thank you so much for for joining us and this was such an incredible conversation and i'm really glad that we were able to convince my co-host ethan because he is yeah, not yeah. a dirt bag but he's a, a an aspiring but, but wheaton's law don't be a dick i was happy <laughs> to go along i was happy to go yeah, along with great. it yeah. cool but i was cool and cool begets cool. yes yes so yeah, so great. So we uh, do a monthly prize every month, um, and we are we're doing this on a social media giveaway. So whoever leaves their favorite comment on our socials about today's discussion, you are going to win some swag from Artistic Finance. It's going to be anything out of our merch shop. So uh, how you're going to enter is you're going to like the post, which will be posted shortly after this. You're going to follow Artistic Finance, Utopia Dreamscape, and Tim, if you like. Yep, follow me. Um, go to my website and sign up for the, the mailing list, timmathiswrites.com. That's that's the best. Um, or you can follow me on Instagram at dirtbagguide, singular, dirtbagguide. <laughs> so yeah, like, every, like, follow, and comment, and then we will pick a winner and uh, send you your Artistic Finance swag. So thanks again for everyone for coming out. Ethan, take it away. All right. So the only thing is that the newsletter. So you can sign up for the the Financial Independence Club newsletter, (laughs) which is written by Utopia Dreamscape and Amy. And you can find that 
at artisticfinance.com slash club, or you can go to the Utopia Dreamscape Instagram, and there's a link in the bio that'll take you to a sign up to get that monthly email that does a summary of this club, uh, and then also a bunch of other financial independence resources. Um, All right, so the next book that we're doing is The Artistic Finance Dirtbag Guide to Life. And it may seem very similar to this month's book, but I assure you that it is completely original. It is not a regurgitated <laughs> chat GPT version of Tim's book. It's totally me. I oh, thought I it up reach- completely. Oh, it's going to be so good. <laughs> it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of golden rules. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. So what did you think of today's book? Head over to Instagram and leave a comment, which is also the way to win the attendance prize. And actually, truth be told, you can also comment on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Any comment out on the socials will actually make you eligible. Now, next month, we are reading Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva, presented by Natasha Joy D'Souza. Find the date, time, and a Zoom link to the meetup at artisticfinance.com slash book club, which I realize is now out of date since it's just the club. But for now, artisticfinance.com slash book club. A note for next month's book, we have an affiliate link at bookshop.org who partners with independent and local bookstores. If you don't get the book from the library and you end up purchasing it, please consider doing it via our affiliate link, which you can find at artisticfinance.com slash book club or in today's show notes. Now, an update on Nicole and Theo and me. I've had dad brain the last couple months, so I don't know if I've mentioned any of this on the podcast yet. So if it's a shock, I apologize for no warning, (laughs) but as of this weekend, we have officially moved out of New York City. So on Sunday, we packed everything onto a moving truck, and then we went to the airport and we flew to Missouri. That's where I'm going to be working for the summer. Today, you might have noticed that my sound quality is different than usual, and that's because the microphone is packed up on the truck, which is going to be arriving tomorrow morning. So I'm recording this with headphones. This flight we took was Theo's very first flight, and he did not cry at all. He was a perfect little baby. It was amazing. Now, I did have some struggle with folding the stroller to the gate check. You're supposed to lock the wheels, and then there's this little thing that holds it folded. Anyway, thankfully, someone figured it out. (laughs) But other than that, the flight was as smooth as possible. And I like to give a shout out here to my sister, Marissa, who came up a couple days early helped us pack up, helped us move, helped us on the plane. I honestly don't know how parents do it, and we would not have been able to do it without Marissa. So thank you, Marissa. Uh, Now, Nicole is on maternity leave, and so all of us are going to be living in Springfield, Missouri, starting next week. I'm lighting a season of shows at Tent Theater, which is on the campus of Missouri State University. I'll be lighting Anything Goes, Baskerville, which is a Sherlock Holmes mystery comedy play, uh, and The Prom. Now, in the middle of that, we're going to be heading to Ivan's, Utah, where I'm going to be lighting beautiful The Carol King musical. Nicole and Theo are going there as well. So yeah, anyway, just wanted you all to know it's been a big move for us. We lived in New York for 10 years, and this summer we're sort of becoming nomadic. (laughs) Now, we're going to be settling down uh, with a new home base in August. We're sorting through those details uh, right now about what we're going to be doing for life and career. But for now, this podcast that has been broadcasting from New York City is today being broadcast from St. Charles, Missouri. And then another thing, today I had a Zoom meeting with a former guest of the show, Ronnie Dutra, a director. Now we're working together to bring a new play off Broadway next year. Now at the end of the meeting, Ronnie said, either you're really well rested after your move or you're a great actor. So Ronnie... Thank you for that. And if anybody wants to know my actual state of being after the move, just get a hold of Nicole, who took some, let's say, unflattering photos of me when we finally finished up the move and and were able to rest for the night. That's it for the updates. If you're still listening, you are a super listener, and I appreciate you being here. If you want to get involved with the podcast that is currently and now broadcasting from St. Charles, Missouri, you can support my work by becoming a patron. Now, patrons get a private podcast feed and you have a direct messaging line to me. So if you want to join up, it makes a huge difference in the budget. So sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. My final note for today is our dad jokes. Now, I asked ChatGPT for some dad jokes about money and 
these are the best ones they gave me. <laughs> these are the best ones. The other ones were so bad, they didn't even make sense. All right, here we go. Why did the man put his money in the oven? Because he wanted to make some hot dough. Why did the pig go to the casino to play the slop machines? And this one has nothing to do with money. I'm not sure why it's in here. Why did the scarecrow win an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance, where we interview successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the creative community. To access our show notes and resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 